I'm Alicia, and this is Dead On. Dead On is a proud member of the Podmoth Media Network. Podmoth. The first sign that something was terribly wrong was recorded on December 15, 1900. Shortly before midnight, a transatlantic steamship called the Arctor was passing by the Flannan Isles, en route to the port of Leith from Philadelphia. While their long voyage was nearly over, they weren't out of the woods yet. After all, the waters around Scotland are notoriously tempestuous, especially in winter. That night was no different. Visibility was absolutely dreadful. So crew aboard the Arctor were counting on the lighthouse to guide them to safety. Unfortunately, the lighthouse was dark, and the island seemed deserted. But where were the lighthouse keepers? And why hadn't they kept the light burning? Let's unravel the curious case of the Flannan Isles Lighthouse Mystery. Today we're headed to, you guessed it, the Flannan Isles Lighthouse, located on an island called Island Moor or Big Island, which is part of the Outer Hebrides, a chain of islands off the west coast of mainland Scotland. If you want to have a squiz for yourself, I've added a Google Earth map to the episode discovery page. I don't think we've been to Scotland together yet, have we? Let me tell you a bit about the area to set the scene. The Flannan Isles are tiny, with a total land mass of about 50 hectares or 120 acres. They look a bit like massive boulders rising out of the Atlantic Ocean. The craggy, rocky islands are surrounded by steep cliffs and the tops are covered with grass and wildflowers. There aren't any trees on the islands, making them look more like a moss-covered boulder than an island from far away. Aside from the lighthouse, the only other buildings on the isles are tumble-down ruins which are centuries old. And it's Scotland we're talking about, right? Picture these rugged islands, dotted with ruins set against a cloudy gray sky surrounded by thick fog rolling off the ocean, which only adds to the spooky, desolate vibe of the place. Currently, no one lives there. Since the lighthouse was fully automated in 1971, there's no need for keepers to live on the island anymore. So everyone left and never came back. And let me tell you, after you hear this story, you won't be hanging out to move there either. The wild, isolated, and ethereal appearance of the place seems to have influenced the local folklore. Shepherds used to bring their flocks to the island, believing that the grass had medicinal powers. If the sheep were sick, the grass would heal them. If a ewe was pregnant, the grass would help her have twins. The only magic grass that I've ever heard of is the type that Snoop Dogg likes to smoke, but okay. 
While the shepherds loved to visit by day, apparently they refused to stay overnight, believing that spirits haunted the place. Spirits or not, the Flannan Isles Lighthouse was built between 1895 and 1899, and it wasn't easy going. The lighthouse sits on a 45-meter or 148-foot-tall cliff. All of the building materials had to be hauled up the side of the island from supply boats. They even had to build a little cable-operated railroad they affectionately called Clapham Junction, named after a busy inner-city train station, which was a total piss-take, of course, because the island could not have been less busy or populated. At all times, the lighthouse was manned by three keepers. And that was it. No one else lived on the island. There was James Decat, the principal keeper, William Ross, the first assistant, Thomas Marshall, the second assistant, Joseph Moore, the third assistant, and Donald MacArthur, the occasional keeper. If one of the keepers needed to leave the island, a replacement keeper would arrive to take his place. I found a photo of these guys, and can I just say, they have the biggest mustaches I've ever seen in my life. I know that was the height of of turn-of-the-century fashion, but holy moly, those things were huge. Anyway, as I mentioned earlier, crew aboard the transatlantic steamship called the Arctor noticed that the lighthouse was dark on December 15th, 1900, which would have been a massive bummer. They made it all the way across the Atlantic Ocean. The last thing they would want is a problem getting through the rocky islands and cliff faces when they were so close to the end of their journey. Despite noting this issue in their ship logs, the crew didn't report it to the Northern Lighthouse Board for further investigation. It would be a further 11 days before the suspicious situation would finally be discovered. At about midday on December 26th, The lighthouse tendership called the Hesperus arrived on the shores. It was relief day, meaning Joseph Moore would arrive to replace one of the other keepers. At the time, James Decat, Thomas Marshall, and Donald MacArthur were stationed on the island. Right away, the captain of the ship knew something was wrong. Typically, the keepers would hang out a flag to greet the crew of the relief ship. But no dice, Grandpa. The flag wasn't there. So Captain James Harvey sounded the steam whistle. No one appeared. So he sounded the siren. Still no one appeared. It was time to bring out the big guns. This time, the crew fired off a rocket. Surely someone would hear that. But still, there was no sign of the keepers. In that moment, I can imagine that ice would have started to creep down the captain's spine. So Joseph Moore was sent in to find out what the heck was going on. Poor Joseph had to clomp up all 160 steep steps up to the lighthouse. As he approached the gates, an overwhelming sense of foreboding washed over him. It was eerily silent. And when he finally got to the entrance of the lighthouse compound, he knew something was horribly wrong. The first thing he noticed was the entrance gate was closed which was strange considering they should have been expecting him. When he entered the kitchen, he discovered that the fireplace had been cold for several days. As he walked from room to room, searching for the keepers, he found their beds empty, just as they left them after getting up every morning. Then he noticed that all of the clocks in the place had stopped. 
The longer he searched, the more unnerved he became. So he ran back to the Hesperus and told Captain Harvey that something terrible must have happened. As darkness started to fall, Captain Harvey knew he had to head back to port. So he left Joseph Moore, a buoy master named Alan McDonald, and two sailors behind on the island, tasking them with getting the lighthouse back into working order and figuring out what happened to the missing keepers. So the men got to work and scoured the entire complex, but hide nor hair of the keepers was discovered. With night falling around them, they knew they had to get the lighthouse going again, so they headed into the light room and got to work. Everything seemed to be in working order. The lens and the machinery had been cleaned. The oil fountain was full which probably means nothing to you and definitely meant nothing to me. Long story short, the state of the lighthouse proved that the keepers had completed their morning maintenance tasks, meaning something must have happened sometime after these tasks had been completed, and most definitely before the lamp was lit in the evening. It wasn't much, but it helped to start piecing together a timeline of events. When the men checked out the kitchen, they discovered that the pots and pans had been cleaned. The kitchen was tidy. Whoever had been acting as cook for the day had completed his tasks, meaning that the missing keepers must have been on the island at least until the afternoon, disappearing sometime between their last meal and when the lamp was due to be lit in the evening. While the timeline was closing, they still needed a bit more information. If the missing men couldn't speak for themselves, the next best thing was to check their logbooks. After flipping through, it was discovered that the last entry was made on the morning of December 15th, which, coincidentally, was the same day that the crew aboard the Ark tour had noticed that the lighthouse was dark. Yet another clue that tightened up the timeline of events. They must have disappeared on the 15th. They must have disappeared after their last meal, but before they were due to light the lamp in the evening. But what the heck could have happened? The men reviewed all the keeper's belongings to see if they could find any clues. They discovered that the second assistant, Thomas Marshall, must have been wearing his sea boots and oilskins when he disappeared. Typically, the only time the keepers wore these items was when they headed down to the landings. So Thomas must have been in or around that area when they disappeared. And here's where the plot thickens. Apparently the principal keeper, James Decat, must have been wearing his sea boots and an old waterproof coat. But strangely, no oilskin. And, most unusual of all, the occasional keeper, Donald MacArthur, disappeared wearing only a shirt. No coat or oilskin to speak of. Remember, this was December in Scotland. Why would Donald head out into the cold, wet winter without a coat on? We'll get to that shortly. Over and over, the men scoured the island from top to bottom. But no matter how hard they searched, they couldn't find even one clue that hinted toward the missing keeper's whereabouts. But they did find some clues that would eventually point to a few theories. On the landing at the east side of the island, everything appeared as it should be. But when they arrived at the landing on the west side of the island, they finally found signs of chaos. Iron railings that surrounded the crane platform had been ripped from their foundations and twisted. A large, heavy block of stone had been dislodged and moved. 
A tackle box that was kept approximately 110 feet above sea level was gone. Its contents, some mooring ropes and tackle, were strewn about the rocks underneath the crane. Ominously, a life buoy that was normally attached to the railings was also missing. As it was only used in emergencies, at first they thought they'd finally figured out what happened to the missing keepers. But after checking the ropes that secured it to the railing, they discovered that the life buoy had been torn from its bindings. It looked like a massive swell had risen up and snatched it from the railing and carried it out to sea. After surveying the damage, it was clear that a violent storm had ravaged this part of the island. After Captain Harvey and the Hesperus returned to port, he reported the situation to the Northern Lighthouse Board. The board superintendent, Robert Muirhead, decided to head over to the island himself to check things out. He arrived on the 29th, just three days after the island was found deserted. Now, Robert is nothing if not meticulous. He interviewed everyone who'd been on the island. He reviewed all the evidence that the workers had discovered. And he started to formulate a theory. He just needed a bit more proof to lock it in. After leaving the island, he also rocked up to Roderick McKenzie's place. Roderick was a gamekeeper who'd been tasked with keeping an eye on the lighthouse from the shore. Every night, he was meant to check if the lighthouse was illuminated, and presumably report any issues to the Northern Lighthouse Board. While Roderick wasn't home when Robert arrived, he was able to speak with Roderick's two teenage sons, who were probably of more help than their dad anyway. Apparently, he farmed out the work of checking the lighthouse to his sons. So the boys hauled out their record book for Robert to have a squiz. According to their notes, the light was illuminated and visible on December 7th, but could not be seen between December 8th and the 11th. Apparently, they saw the light once again on December 12th, but it wouldn't be seen again until the 26th, the night that Joseph Moore arrived on the island and took over. At first, Robert was concerned. This was a much longer time frame than he'd initially anticipated. He assumed that it would have just been dark between December 15th, when the keepers went missing, and December 26th, when Joseph Moore illuminated it. And that's it. However, upon further investigation, he discovered that it wasn't unusual not to see the light every day. If the weather was particularly bad and visibility was poor, they might not see it for four to five nights in a row. And Robert was able to verify this for himself. That being said, Roderick was really concerned that it had been weeks since he'd seen the light, and had even asked other people in the area to keep their eyes peeled but for whatever reason, didn't report his concerns to the lighthouse board. Frankly, Roderick blew it. Needless to say, Robert Muirhead wasn't especially impressed with this oversight. While it might not have spared the lighthouse keepers from whatever accident befell them, it would have given the board notice that replacement keepers needed to be sent to the island. Despite the thorough search and investigation, I'm sorry to report that the missing lighthouse keepers have never been seen or heard from again, nor have their bodies ever been found. And you know how cases like this go. When there's no definitive answer, the mind goes wild filling in the blanks. The rumor mill churns, and the tinfoil hat conspiracy theorists come popping out of the woodwork. Let's explore a few different theories. 
starting at the most outrageous and working our way towards the most probable. Now, I'm going to warn you, this is the most out there theory of all, but I had to include it for a number of reasons. First of all, Scottish folklore is top-notch. We've all heard of the Loch Ness Monster, but Scotland's other mythical creatures deserve a bit of airtime, too. Second of all, my dad and I used to read A Christmas Carol every holiday season, and now I associate a good, spooky Victorian story with Christmas. With Christmas coming, I need a bit of spooky vibes in my life. So here we go. Legend has it that the waters around the Outer Hebrides is home to a clan of mythical creatures called the Blue Men of the Minch, also known as Storm Kelpies. From what I can tell, they vaguely look like mermaids, or merpeople. I'm not trying to misgender them here, okay? Apparently the Blue Men have a fish tail and a human upper body, and are roughly human-sized. Like all mythical creatures, the Blue Men have supernatural powers. In their case, they seem to be a bit like Storm from the X-Men, because apparently they can control the weather. When the Blue Men are asleep, the seas are calm and peaceful. But when they wake up, look out, because all hell breaks loose. Apparently the weather would suddenly turn, the seas would churn, and entire ships could be lost beneath the waves. Frankly, the Blue Men seem like moody gits. While they could be friendly with humans, you better not piss them off, because they'd happily pull you under and drown your ass if they feel disrespected. Fortunately, you might be able to turn things around if you got off on the wrong foot with the Blue Man. According to Scottish lore, the Blue Men go absolutely wild for poetry. If you could beat them in a rhyming battle, they'd spare your life. But that's not the only way to pacify the Blue Men. During the Celtic festival of Samhain, locals light candles and place them by the water to pay respect. So what do the Blue Men of the Minch have to do with the missing keepers? Well, according to the most wild theory surrounding this case, the keepers must have pissed off one of the Blue Men, earning them all a one-way ticket to the bottom of the ocean. Do I believe that's what happened? Mm, no, of course not. But if not the Blue Men, then what else could have happened to the Keepers? If the second theory isn't as out there as the first, I'm not here. Rumors swirled that Joseph Moore saw three huge blackbirds perched on top of the lighthouse when he arrived on the island. As he climbed all those steps to the front gate, the birds sat and stared at him ominously. Folklore surrounding the mystery suggests that the three Keepers were turned into those birds. How or why, I'm not entirely sure. But that sounds a lot more like the plot of a Hitchcock movie than reality to me. The third possibility is much more grounded in reality than the first two. According to some sources, Robert Muirhead found some concerning entries in the lighthouse logbook. On December 12th, Thomas Marshall recorded severe winds in the logbook, like nothing he'd seen before in 20 years. Apparently the extreme weather had taken a toll on the keepers and morale was at an all-time low. James DeCat had been uncharacteristically quiet, and William MacArthur had been crying. On December 13th, the entry explained that the storm was still raging. It had gotten so bad that all three keepers feared for their lives and began to pray. 
The final entry in the log was recorded on December 15th, the day the men are alleged to have disappeared. It read, quote, Storm ended. Sea calm. God is over all. End quote. None of this sounds particularly strange yet, right? It tracks with what we know about winter weather in the Hebrides. However, weather reports from mainland Scotland are said to contradict those recorded in the lighthouse log. Apparently, no storms were recorded between December 12th and 16th, leading some people to speculate that the men were imagining the bad weather, that the isolating experience of living on an island for weeks at a time with just two other people was starting to get to them. Perhaps their mental health was declining to the point they were hallucinating. And you know what that sounds like to me? Folly adieu. For this theory to work, the keepers would have all participated in the shared delusion. Perhaps they became so frightened by the hallucinations that they suffered a tragic accident while trying to get away from the weather. But here's where this theory all falls apart for me. For one, I read Robert Muirhead's report about the keeper's disappearance, and he doesn't mention being concerned by logbook entries anywhere. Additionally, we know for a fact that the island has sustained quite a lot of damage from what must have been a very severe storm, which proves the validity of any possible entries about severe weather. So, I think we can firmly debunk this theory too. Unfortunately, the most likely scenario is a lot less spooky and a lot more tragic. After a thorough investigation, Robert Muirhead concluded that the men were likely swept out to sea probably on Saturday, December 15th, 1900. Let's back up for a second. You might recall that the Flannan Isles Lighthouse sits at nearly the highest point on the island, approximately 45 meters or 148 feet up the side of a cliff. You'd think it'd be fairly protected from the waves, right? How could the ocean have reached them, let alone dragged them out to sea? Well, here's the thing. The North Atlantic Ocean is notoriously tumultuous. The most northerly point of the Outer Hebrides is called the Butt of Lewis. It's frequently battered by massive rolling swells and heavy storms. According to locals, the Butt of Lewis is the most windy location in the entire United Kingdom. Aside from the wretched weather, the shape of the island creates massive swells as well. The Flannan Isles are covered in formations called geos which are narrow and deep gullies in the face of the cliff. Over eons, the cliff face is eroded by the driving wind and water, and when the ocean rushes into the geos, it drives the water upwards violently, a bit like a blowhole, right? If you check out the map I made on Google Earth, you can see the island is absolutely covered in these formations. Which brings us to our most likely and most unfortunate scenario. Considering the area absolutely blew a gale and was routinely smashed by massive waves, it was essential to store all equipment properly to avoid losing any gear to the ocean. Well, guess what? Apparently two of the lighthouse keepers had previously been fined for not properly storing their gear, including Thomas Marshall, the second assistant. According to records, Thomas neglected to store some equipment properly and it was washed out to sea. Apparently, he was fined five shillings as a result. So here's what I think happened. On the afternoon of December 15th, a massive storm must have rolled in and thrashed the island. 
Remember the tackle box that went missing from the West Landing? Robert believes that two of the keepers must have gone out to ensure that tackle box was secure. Probably Thomas Marshall and James Decat. So the men left the lighthouse and headed down to the West Landing to secure the box, donning their weatherproof gear on the way out the door. According to protocol, one keeper must remain in the lighthouse at all times. So it's likely that Donald MacArthur stayed behind to hold down the fort. And here's where it all went sideways. As Thomas and James stood on the west landing, a massive wave must have risen up out of the ocean, crashing down upon the two men and sweeping them out to sea. Considering Donald was only wearing a shirt when he disappeared, I'm guessing that he saw the wave take his fellow keepers. Realizing he didn't have a moment to lose, Donald ran out of the lighthouse without his coat. Unfortunately, it's likely that another rogue wave swept him out to sea as well. Considering the West Landing experienced extensive damage from the storm, and their bodies have never been found, sadly, I think this is the most likely scenario. Despite the high likelihood of a tragic accident, the spooky stories and theories surrounding this case persist. Legend has it that subsequent keepers reported strange incidents on the island, apparently hearing ghostly voices echoing in the wind, calling out the names of the missing keepers. Rest in peace, James Decat, Thomas Marshall, and Donald MacArthur. May angels lead you in. Before I go, I need to thank the legends who support Dead On. Special thanks to Chris Hardy of the True Crime Club on Facebook, Haley Hepburn, Brandy Lewis, Daniel Vaughn, Justin Ware, Michelle Engsmeer, Jennifer Henshaw, Lisa Powell, and the newest member of the gang, my girl Gizla Kay. She's a legend on YouTube. Go check her out at Grizzly True Crime. Okay, that's enough from me. Look out for those rogue waves. They'll get you every time. And for fuck's sakes, stop committing crimes. Okay, bye. If you're all caught up on Dead On and looking for a new pod to binge, you gotta check out Buzzkillers. Here's a little snack of what you can expect. Everybody knows that true crime can be a real buzzkiller. So why not pair it with a nice glass of wine? Join us, Macy and Nicole, the hosts of Buzzkillers, a true crime podcast, as we drink our way through new bottles of wine every week while navigating true crime cases, conspiracy theories, and even some spooky haunts. The deep dives are kept light with banter and personal tales, and even the occasional boozy hiccup. Listeners are encouraged to grab a drink of any kind and tune in every Sunday as we tell the tales of the wicked that plague this world. Buzzkillers can be streamed on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, and anywhere else you like to listen. Check out our website, www.buzzkillerspodcast.com, for more information.